Welcome to the second, second Sunday of Epiphany, the season sandwiched in between Christmas and Lent, in between the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus. It is a season in which we seek to understand the life of Jesus, with the expectation, the hope, that the better we know Him, the more our lives will make sense. We strain to see Him clearly, and the rest of the world comes into focus as well. And this morning, we seek to come to know Jesus better. As we come to know Jesus better, we have our work cut out for us. Because even John the Baptist is in a state of confusion about Jesus. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He was the man who was supposed to be preparing the hearts of a people for Jesus. Like a farmer tilling soil before the seed is spread. If anyone should have been able to understand the movements and plans of Jesus Christ, it was John the Baptist. And yet John the Baptist all but asks Jesus in verse 14 of our New Testament passage this morning, what are you doing? There's confusion, even conflict, between Jesus and John. Jesus wants one thing, and John is baffled by the request. Jesus comes to John requesting baptism. Specifically that he, John, baptize him. And John immediately recoils at the idea. The text says that John initially refused to fulfill Jesus' request and only reluctantly agreed when Jesus insisted. And not just insisted, but appealed to a larger purpose for his unusual request, calling in reinforcements, as it were. Jesus told John, It is fitting for us to do this, in order to fulfill all righteousness. He was asking for righteousness' sake, not his own. This was not a request made on a whim. This was not even a personal desire, something on Jesus' personal bucket list. Jesus' request for baptism was part of a larger plan that John wasn't privy to understand, despite his position within God's act of self-disclosure in the person of Jesus Christ. And so John consented despite his persistent confusion. He baptized Jesus, and what happened after the water was poured over Jesus' head must have been confirmation for John that indeed this was the right thing to do, because the clouds parted, and the Holy Spirit descended on the Son of God like a dove fluttering its wings as it hovers in the air. And God the Father spoke words of affirmation and confirmation over Jesus, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism assured John that the baptism of Jesus was part of the triune God's plan, hidden and established in secret before all time. A plan that John was only recently let in on. John had been swept up into a story much larger than himself and his ability to comprehend it all. And here we are with John this morning, still trying to wrap our minds around the reason for Jesus' baptism. And we're going to look at three things as we attempt to do that this morning. We're going to look at John's confusion, Jesus' insistence, and our consequent comfort. So John's confusion, Jesus' insistence, insistence, and our consequent comfort. And the first is John's confusion. Why is it confusing that 
Jesus would want to be baptized. Perhaps it doesn't bother you any, but it obviously upset the mind of John. Why is that? You have to understand John's mission and John's message in order to appreciate his confusion. John was an opening act. He was not the main event. He was that lesser-known band sent out on stage in order to warm up the crowd and build anticipation for the purpose everyone had really come out to see. And to continue this metaphor, instead of coming out at the end of John's set and pushing him aside in order to play to the audience, Jesus instead, in this passage, is joining the people. He goes out into the crowd while John is still playing, and he stands with them, listening to John, responding to him. It's like Jesus forgot who he was, that he was in fact the main event, and it made John uncomfortable to have the master listening to him, the apprentice. John tells the crowd in verse 11 of Matthew 3 that he believes himself unworthy to even untie the shoelaces of Jesus. It's no wonder that John at first refused Jesus' request to baptize him, because here is Jesus submitting himself to the teaching of John. Jesus was confusing their roles and confusing John. But perhaps what was even more confusing for John was why Jesus was even requesting baptism at all. John's confusion comes not just from Jesus' desire for John to baptize him, but that Jesus would even seek to be baptized in the first place. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each explicitly state that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance is the act of seeing yourself clearly as a sinner deserving of God's displeasure and changing your ways, ceasing to do those things that are displeasing to God. And John's baptism was a rite of of purification that embodied this change of heart. A person being baptized by John was allowing the water to speak for them. I once was dirty before God, the water says, but now... I commit myself to living a clean and holy life. So let this water wash me. John's baptism was an act of repentance, demonstrating the resolve of the sinner to sin no longer. And if that was the nature of John's baptism, then perhaps you can begin to understand John's confusion at Jesus' request to be baptized. John rightly understood Jesus to be the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. If Jesus is all of these things, then he is decidedly not a sinner, deserving of God's displeasure and needing to repent. From what should he repent? He is only goodness and kindness, holiness and perfection. There is no need for repentance in his life. And yet Jesus comes to John and says, let me be baptized. I want to repent. (laughs) You can understand the confusion of John at this point, and sympathize with his refusal of Jesus even. But Jesus insisted on being baptized. And this brings us to our second point, Jesus' insistence. It is necessary to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus told John, whatever that means. Well, what Jesus means in saying this, Herman Boving, one of the great Dutch theologians, articulates well. 
He writes, The case is that Christ's entire life and work, from his conception to his death, was substitutionary in nature. Everything he did, he did for us, on our behalf. We are the unrighteous, a rebellious humanity whose corrupt nature always inclines us towards sin so that we are justly deserving of God's anger. But Jesus came to make the unrighteous righteous in him. And in American evangelicalism, we talk often of Jesus dying on the cross for us, and we should. But we so often emphasize the death of Jesus that we utterly neglect his life, which was no less substitutionary in nature. As Bavink said, Christ's entire life and work, from conception to his death, was substitutionary in nature. Which means that he not only died for us, but he lived for us as well, on our behalf. He was obedient for us. He resisted temptation for us. And yes, he even repented for us. Jesus Christ, the penitent. Jesus had no personal need to be baptized by John because he had done nothing wrong of which he should repent. But he was baptized by John because we have done many things wrong of which we need to repent. Theologian J.B. Torrance, in his book, Worship Community and the Triune God of Grace, positions himself in Jesus' shoes at the time of his baptism and writes a kind of inner dialogue for our Lord that helps to clear up the confusion as to why Jesus was baptized. Torrance writes, When he saw the people going down into the river to be baptized by John, confessing their sins, submitting to the verdict of guilty, which is repentance, Jesus said to John, Baptize me. I will submit to the verdict of guilty for them. He identified himself with sinners that he might take their place as their substitute under the judgment of God. In being baptized by John, Jesus is doing for us what we are actually unable to do for ourselves. Our relationship with repentance is a complicated one. Complicated by our fallen nature and the purposes of Satan in our lives. The English Puritan Thomas Brooks has a a book titled Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It's it's a little bit like a 17th century version of C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. Brooks attempts to articulate the methods of Satan in deceiving humanity in order to make us conscious of Satan's movements in the world and in our own lives. And in his book, he says that one of Satan's devices is to confuse our perception of repentance in order to keep us from ever repenting. And the way he does this, Brooks point out, is that he makes repentance seem to be an easy thing at first. Satan says to our tempted souls, suppose you do sin. It is no such difficult thing to return and confess and be sorrowful and beg pardon and cry, Lord, have mercy upon me. And if you do but this, God will forgive your debt and pardon your sins and save your souls. See, he decreases the apparent difficulty of repentance in order to ease us into committing the sin. And since the way out is so easy and assured, it is but a small matter to indulge in sin. But once we give ourselves to this sin, once we take his bait... Then Satan changes his tune on repentance in order to keep us in our sin. Satan says to our guilty souls, Now, do but consider your numberless sins, 
and the greatness of your sins, the foulness of your sins, the heinousness of your sins, the circumstances of your sins, and you shall easily see that those sins that you thought to be but tiny particles are indeed mountains. And is it now, not now in vain to repent of them? Surely, if you should seek repentance and grace with tears as Esau, you shall not find it. Your sand has run through the hourglass. Your sun has set. The door of mercy is shut. The golden scepter is withdrawn. And now you that have despised mercy shall be forever destroyed by justice. You see, Satan emphasizes the mercy of God and the ease of repentance to get you to sin and the justice of God and the impossibility of repentance to keep you in it. It's Satan's desire that we should never repent. Our repentance is his defeat. And not only do we have such an adversary attempting to keep us from God, but we also, in our fallen nature, find repentance to be near impossible. Repentance is, on its own, almost unsustainable for humanity in our fallen nature because, as Brooks points out, true repentance inclines a person's heart to perform God's statutes always, even unto the end. A true penitent must go on from faith to faith, from strength to strength. They must never stand still nor turn back. Repentance that lasts for only a day or a week, an hour, a month, even an entire year is incomplete. Yet that's the character of much of our repentance, is it not, in our fallenness? We need a substitute in our repentance. And this is why Jesus insisted on being baptized by John for you. He was repenting for us because we could not do it on our own. Having committed no sin, still he was crucified for our sin. Having committed sin, no sin, still he repented for our sin. He was baptized for us. He repented for us. It was for us that he insisted John baptize him. You were on his mind, not just on the cross, but also in the waters of the Jordan River. And the comfort of Jesus' repentance on our behalf, which is our third point, the comfort this is for us, is that our repentance is now into Christ, who has already repented for us to the point of death. Our repentance is a participation in Jesus Christ, the penitent. In Him, our feeble efforts and faltering resolve are graciously accepted. We find Him repenting for us and before us. This means that when you see yourself as you are, a sinner in need of God's constant grace and forgiveness, and you repent. Your act of repentance no longer has to be hindered by fear of an angry God, what Thomas Brooks reminds us that Satan would have us believe. Because in Jesus we find not that the door of mercy has been shut, but that it's been thrown wide open. Repentance is no longer motivated by guilt and your subsequent resolve to be better from now on. No, repentance is motivated by the love that God has for us in Jesus and the assurance that in Him we are accepted in being made holy. Our arm, open arms fuel our repentance, not crossed ones. In Jesus, repentance is the exact opposite of what Satan would have us believe. 
Satan says up front that repentance is easy to get you to sin. But once you sin, he tells you to repent all you want, but God is angry with you and will no longer accept you. But God, in order to spare us the misery of our sin, shows us up front the gravity of our sin, the cost of our repentance, by setting before us the death of Christ. This is what it costs. And when we do inevitably sin, He fills our act of repentance with joy and comfort by reminding us of Jesus' baptism of repentance on our behalf and forgiveness that we are guaranteed in Him. He was baptized in the Jordan so that we find God speaking over us the same words that He spoke over Jesus that day. We do not get the silence that Jesus experienced from God in His baptism on the cross, a baptism into blood and death. No, because Jesus experienced the cross for us. All we now hear from God is, This is my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. He is pleased with us because of the substitutionary life and death of Jesus on our behalf. Surely there is no greater motivation for repentance than such an expression of grace and love as that. The door of mercy has been opened wide for you to enter in. Jesus Christ the penitent. It's a strange title for a man who never sinned. And yet it is the hope of, a, hope of hopes for us who always have. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.